This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello. In the collection of Cambridge University Library is a modest notebook which belongs to Isaac Newton when he was a student. As well as notes about the mathematical textbooks he was reading, it contains the detail of some of his earliest experiments. One of these, which would horrify modern researchers, entailed inserting a knitting needle behind his eyeball to see what effect this had on his vision. Newton's dangerous experiments were part of a two-and-a-half-thousand-year quest to understand the nature of human vision. Ancient thinkers were fascinated by the eye, believing it contained a mysterious, illuminating fire. In later centuries it became known, in Leonardo's famous phrase, as the window of the soul. But establishing the structures and properties of the eye took many centuries and the work of some of the greatest figures of Western thought. With me to discuss the history of the eye are Patricia Farrer, Senior Tutor of Clare College, University of Cambridge, William Ayliff, Gresham Professor of Physics at Gresham College, and Robert Ayliff, Professor of Intellectual History and the History of Science at the University of Sussex. Patricia Farrer... Who were the earliest thinkers to study the workings of the eye that we know about, and in what context did they undertake that? Well, the first um, theories that we really know about were by the pre-Socratics in uh, 5th century BC in Greece. And one of the most famous of these was Empedocles. And their basic idea was that there's some divine fire inside your eye that goes out, and it's almost like the feeling of touch. You stretch out your fingers to touch something and feel it and learn about it, and similarly the fire goes out from your eye and enables you to learn about what it is that's in front of you. And you can see relics of that idea in one English. We talk about, we say something like, his eyes flashed with anger or his eyes gleamed with appreciation. And you get similar imagery in Homer, although I think it probably meant something more real to Homer than it does to us. So th- this idea is called extramission, the idea that... Extramission. Extramission, yeah. the, the idea that something is going out, being sent uh, f- uh, from... Miso is the Latin uh, for I send. So something is being sent out of your eye to grasp and perceive the outside world. There's some fairly obvious objections to that uh, theory. Uh, One is it doesn't really explain why you can't see anything at night. Uh, Another problem is it doesn't really explain what happens when you look in a mirror, for example. So there are various difficulties. So over the centuries, people refined that theory. Um, One of the most important people to do that was Plato, um, and he, as had many other people, noticed that things like the sun or a candle also give out their own light. So he developed a more, uh, sort of slightly more interactive theory, so there's a special divine light that comes out of your eye, and it interacts in some strange way with the ambient light and there's a very nice image of that in the poem The Ecstasy by John Donne when he describes a lover's uh, lover's eye beams twisting together into a double thread and so Plato had this sort of thread notion that you're, the, the fire in your eye is linked to the ambient light 
And after Plato, there's Euclid, who was uh, the student of one of Plato's students, and he worked out the geometry of optics. But he followed the Platonic idea of extra mission. But the, in, so he had the idea that light comes from a cone, at the point of a cone, right in the middle of your eye, and spreads out. And so he worked out all the geometry, all the angles of incidence and reflection. But, of course, those that geometry works exactly the same way if the light is coming into the eye, as we now believe. So that was the one tradition of very uh, strongly believing there's some sort of rays that come out of your eye. The other type of theory was introduced by the atomists, and they had they wanted tiny particles. They had this idea that if you look at something, a tiny skin of atoms, perhaps just one atom thick, creates something called the eidolon, which is like the shape of the object, and it transmits through the air and somehow mysteriously enters into your eye. So there's those two different traditions. Intromission, no. That's intromission, yes, when the eidolon somehow comes to your eye. I mean, there's all sorts of problems about why doesn't the eidolon lose shape when it goes through water, or how is it if you're looking at a mountain, you can get a whole mountain into your eye. So there are a lot of problems with that theory too, but those are the two basic um, opposing ideas of the ancient Greeks. Well, Elif, what context was this discussion taking place in? Was this, again, part of the Greeks' pursuit of pure knowledge for the sake of knowledge, or was there any uh, practical reason behind it? Um, it, there were both of those are correct. Um, the, um, it looks experimentally. If you look at an animal by a fire at night, you see the eyes reflecting. And so it was very um, easy for them to imagine that the fire was coming out of the eye. And similarly, if you look at someone closely, you can see a reflection, an erect image of yourself and anything behind you in the cornea, which again would suggest that these little simulcra or idea were coming off objects and being implanted on the seat of vision. They were starting to introduce surgery for eye diseases at this stage, particularly couching for cataract. So in order to do this, they needed to have some theory of vision, so it was being driven by practical uh, considerations as well. Did Aristotle's thought have any impact on this? Aristotle's had... Completely um, changed the way people were thinking. Very much a supporter of an intromission theory, but uh, through a complicated process, he believed that the transparent medium instantaneously coagulated with the object that was being seen and somehow impressed an image on the organ of sight, which in those days was believed to be the crystalline lens. Now, um, how so it where does he stand in the extramission, intromission? Well, he's very much on the intromission side of things, and in fact his theories <coughs> are going to become dominant. It's, you can do the mathematics of uh, rays of light, whether it's intromission or extramission. So even the later writers, Euclid, can do very complicated maths. It doesn't matter whether it's intromission or extramission, but it does matter when you're actually going to consider how sight is actually working. So the Aristotelian ideas are the ones that become dominant in later thought and particularly picked up. And is he, would you say... I'm sorry to interrupt. Is Mm. he, as it were, setting the right course, setting the right line for future thinkers on this? A line that's most profitable to follow? Yes, and certainly Because we're talking about a man (coughs) whose influence stretched from for about one and a half thousand years and right into the Middle Ages, people are referring to him saying, Aristotle says this, we will continue in that line, aren't they? So do you think he was on the right lines? Uh, Well, absolutely, because the early medieval people were able to prove that extramission was incorrect and they were also 
um, to show that skins coming off objects and the objects didn't gradually disappear like ice uh, again meant that you know thousand-year-old objects were still the same shape and size as they were a thousand years earlier which they couldn't if they were shedding their skins all the time. So Aristotle becomes immensely influential. And um, uh, all of these theories, as Patricia was saying, still have echoes in our modern world. But as, as so often happened then, <coughs> the people who took it on, developed it, added to it and so on, was the, let's call it the Arab civilization from about the 8th and 9th to the 12th, 13th century. Um, the Islamic world took this up very cleverly and uh, assiduously. Could you describe that a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. Well, um, when the court uh, moved to Baghdad, um, the influence of the Persian thinkers and philosophers from centuries before um, became very prominent in Arab thought, and many experimentalists were to come along and experiment with light rays. We have Ibn Sal, who discovered what we now call Snell's Law, um, hundreds of years before it was recognised in the West. And this is how you can measure the mathematically the bending of a ray of light in a crystal structure. We have um, great translations done of the Greek works, um, De Aspectibus, uh, uh, translated again into Latin. Um, and all of these thoughts are going on at this time. It's a very exciting time. There's practical experiments being done as well. And, uh, in fact, some of the thoughts of Aristotle's coagulation go on and prefigure Descartes, and Descartes himself thinks uh, that there is a solid but transparent medium with the balls, actually, of the atoms transmit information. Let's turn the Arab world <coughs> for a moment, though. Uh, Rob Eilif, the most celebrated authority on the eye in the Islamic world was a scholar known Al-Hazan. What did he add to the knowledge? Well, uh, Al-Hazan is the arguably the greatest optical theorist of, of all time, uh, he was born in 965 in, in the Common Era and was put under house arrest in about uh, 1010 in the Common Era. And for the next 10 years, he engaged in a whole series of uh, great ex optical experiments, um, some of them psychophysiological, dealing with uh, sort of unseen movements of the eye, dealing with binocular vision. He did a whole series of experiments with mirrors, um, but perhaps his, his greatest uh, achievement is really to, to try and understand how there is a one-to-one -one correspondence between uh, what you see and what there is in the outside world. Because, Can you develop that? Yeah, sure. If you, if you imagine the, the way these uh, people are thinking at, at the time, uh, most of the people in the, the Arabic tradition are, are arguing that from every point... Uh, in, in, in every part of the world there is, a, a, if you like, a, a, a spherical array of rays leaving at each point. Uh, if, if that's true, then, w then all these rays should be coming in through the, the, the pupil in the eye uh, and causing a, a, a kind of infinity of, of confusion in what you see. And what Al-Hazan did was to uh, attempt... Uh, a theory to explain why it is that we don't have confusion that we, and, and why it is that we see things, uh, as Will said earlier on, on, on the lens. Was this a convincing theory? Uh, it, it is convincing in its own right. I mean, it, it, it's essentially the idea that uh, we only see uh, rays that come into the pupil perpendicularly. Um, so any other rays, any other light that doesn't come in perpendicularly or is refracted uh, by the cornea, uh, as they saw it into the lens is is actually not seen at all now that's implausible um, but his account does explain this one-to-one -one correspondence 
His work it wasn't as neat as this, but as we're rushing through two and a half thousand years, yeah. we can we move on. The medieval European thinkers, <coughs> uh, Gross Test and Roger Bacon, could be said to have developed, built on his work. Could you tell me how they did that? Yes, I I wouldn't say that Gross Test builds that much on his work. In fact, Gross Test has got a, a very sophisticated and an interesting metaphysical theory about the the importance of light. If you like, light is the sort of primary energy of the universe. It's what um, causes and is the result of the, the, the great big bang in his theory. But what uh, Gross test does do is he uh, improves, if you like, the Aristotelian theory of sensible forms. For, for Aristotle and his followers, it's sensible forms that are the things that uh, emanate from objects and that, that come into the eye. Um, Gross test calls these things species, um, and what they are remains uh, somewhat problematic. But what he says is taken up by the, the other great theorist of, of the time, uh, Roger Bacon. Who adds but, what? Well, Bacon is a great synthesis. Um, he's somebody who uh, really brings together in a, in a slightly implausible way all the things we've heard so far. So he takes on board the, uh, the, the Alhazen intromission theory where rays come into the eye. Um, he also is interested in the idea that Gross Test has that actually there are there are species that resemble the original thing seen that come into the eye and uh, and sort of implant themselves on the lens in the eye. But Bacon peculiarly also has an extramission theory, and this is this is perhaps the the most peculiar of the, the, the theories that people will hear today. But but Bacon essentially says that although there are species of these objects coming into the eye. Uh, the the soul, as it were, the soul of the body, which reaches to the lens, actually projects its own species outwards into the medium between the person and the thing seen. And as it were, in his words, it ennobles the medium to allow you to see things veridically, that is, as they really are. So uh, Bacon strives... Roger Bacon strives to bring together, to synthesise all these previous theories. And his work is extremely influential through two of his followers, uh, Peacham and, and Witterloh, in the, uh, in the 14th, 15th and 16th centuries. All three of those write books with the title uh, De Perspectiva, which is why they're known as the Perspectivists. Patricia Farrar, we haven't talked about anatomy yet. Can we talk to the... Sorry, can we discuss the great Renaissance... Uh, anatomist Andreas Vesalius and what he brought to this accumulation of knowledge is coming from different pathways to discover more about the eye. Uh, yes, Vesalius was by far the most famous Renaissance anatomist. Have we got a particular... Can you give us a specific date here? Uh, well, his big book came out in 1453, right. the same year yeah. as the book in which Copernicus put the sun at the centre of the universe. So the 1453 was a very, very... Uh, sorry, I mean 1543. 1543 was a very, very important year. So that was the date that he published his big book on anatomy. And he, he was a Flemish um, doctor who came down and who studied in Padua in Italy. And the thing that he aimed to do was to overthrow previous theories, but also to overthrow the previous style of medicine. So one very important person that we haven't mentioned yet is Galen. And Galen was originally a Greek surgeon and then he went and worked in Rome for the emperor. He carried out a lot of dissection. Most of his dissections were on baboons. He knew a lot of human surgery because one of his jobs was to patch up the gladiators. And he also did, for the eye, he did a lot of experiments on ox eyes rather than on human eyes. And Galen was convinced that it's the lens, not the retina, it's the lens that's the seat of vision. 
And this idea, amongst many others that Galen held, absolutely held sway right through into the 16th, even into the 17th century. And when Vesalius did his dissection, he tried to overthrow Galen's ideas, and he also tried to show that the way an anatomist should work is by looking directly at the body. You should work from the body rather than from books. But with the for some reason he wasn't particularly interested in the eye and when you look at his anatomy of the eye it still shows traces of the Galenic influence and the same is true of Leonardo da Vinci whose um, the drawings he did of the eye are very Galenic with this lens right at the very centre Well if, did Leonardo add much he added the wonderful phrase window to the soul <coughs> but did he add much to the development of thought about the eye um he did, but unfortunately it's one of the very few areas where he was entirely wrong. Again, he was taking the Galenic um, view. Um, he believed in the importance of the ventricles of the brain. He did some wax castings and confirmed that Galen was correct in that the first ventricle, what we now call the lateral ventricles, was um, uh, two connected together. And there were two others. So the idea was that vision or any other special sense came in it went through a filter and then went into the first ventricle, the common sense, the communa sensor. Again, an idea that persists to the days. And then it goes for further processing and finally into memory, which is the final um, ventricle at the back. This was um, ideas that had been developed by the early church. It, they were very important um, f for the religious um, thinking. And Why was that? Um, because they were moving the idea of the seat of the soul from the heart and putting it into the brain and believe the importance of the brain. And Leonardo describes a particular impressiva, which is the area that receives the sensations before they go into the ventricles. And this is an anatomical structure that's never been found before nor since. So unfortunately, in this aspect, um, he's not of much help to us. Um, coming back to um, the great Franciscans, of course, when we look at Bobby Grosted, of course, he didn't have Arcassen because it hadn't been translated by Gerald Cremona at that time. Roger Bacon did have these. So we're looking at thoughts that are coming in from the Arab world and changing the Western world and the way it's thinking and developing its ideas. Uh, you've brought up that idea of influence and going, going to Leonardo da Vinci, although of course we all absolutely adore him and are very fascinated by all his drawings, he had very little influence because everything remained in manuscript and he never published it, so although mm. he's a key figure for us, he was not a key figure at the time, so I think when you consider the history of any sort of science or intellectual activity, looking at publications and how ideas were spread is absolutely crucial. Um, one of the problems we have when we look at the eye and the brain is how dissections were done. Mm. The first day of dissections after prayers was when you actually took out all the rotting organs in the middle cavities, the lungs, the guts, the liver and the lights. Mm. You then did the dissection of the muscles. And then on the third day, you opened up the scalp, cut into the head, and then you anatomised the brain, which is why Vesalius's drawing of the brain is... Um, not an accurate representation. In fact, it wasn't until that great anatomist and Gresham professor Christopher Wren, who was sometime latterly a, an architect, um, he did the first correct drawing of the human brain um, <coughs> through pickling it and using wax injections 
of the blood vessels was able to prove Leonardo was wrong and there wasn't a retinitis miraculous which is present in animals, which is why Galen had written about it, but it's not present here. It's the Circle of Willis. And the Gresham College is moved to Oxford at this time, to Wadham. There's a great synthesis of great thinkers, and Willis is there, and um, Wren actually does many of the drawings and anatomical things for Willis's great book. Rob Eilif, we're coming to the 17th century, the scientific uh, revolution, great figures, and I want you to talk about Johannes Kepler, but we must, I think, pay however brief attention to, we hinted at by Will, the, uh, the theological dimension to this. Uh, theologians, many of whom were extraordinarily brilliant men within the canopy that they accepted as the intellectual perimeter of their lives, they, they let there be light, God had created light, and so it had to go back to that. Did that have an influence on the way investigations were uh, pursued? I think the eye is seen as uh, the, the most spiritual of the, the sensory organs. It, it, it's, uh, it's, it has to be said that the, the organ uh, which is most concerned with lust, and it has to be um, conditioned, it has to be disciplined uh, in, in a very important way, whether you're a Catholic or a Protestant. The, the other issue, I think, is, is what we call natural theology and the way in which natural theology and Aristotelianism go together. The, the, the fact is that for Aristotelians, uh, which is nearly everybody in this period, um, that there is such a thing as uh, authentic seeing. If, if you are not mad or blind, uh, God has created your lens, your eye, so that you will see things as they really are. Um, it's, it's as if the, the, the eye itself, let, let alone the, the soul or the person behind it, but the eye itself has been made by God with the purpose of seeing things veridically. And in, in a sense, the, the, the wonderful construction of the eye, uh, when you look at it, it is, it is made to see, but it also when you look at it and analyse it, it bespeaks a divine creator. Can we talk... Johannes Kepler, was he... Well, let's talk about his work. He, yep. he made a major contribution. Was he, uh, in passing, was he a, a, a believer, a religious man? Yes. Yes, right. So, Johannes Kepler. Well, you, you can make a big argument, I think, for saying that the first decade of the 17th century is, is, is the most important decade in the history of science. Um, Galileo makes his discovery of the telescope. Uh, Kepler himself writes his great book, Astronomia Nova, in 1609. Um, but Kepler himself makes this uh, totemic, extraordinary intervention uh, with his work, which is a, it's a, it's a, a hymn, uh, a paean to Whitelow in 1604. And what Who came uh, from Roger Bacon? Uh, yeah, well, they're, they're, these are the Franciscans, Peacham and Whitelow are, are these two people who who the first one, what Peacham knew Bacon, uh, but their works are the most influential in the in the scholastic medieval period. Um, Kepler goes to work with the great Danish uh, astronomer Tycho Brahe in 1600, and he's interested in uh, looking at uh, Brahe's um, observations, and he wants to know whether you can make corrections for refraction, because he knows that light is refracted through the atmosphere. And w what this takes him to is a, is a long, deep analysis of the structure of the eye. And there, there are two sources that are very important for him. One is a work on anatomy by a man called Felix Platter, uh, and Platter, in a sense, shows uh, definitively that the uh, the perspectivist account of the role of the lens is false. Uh, the perspectivists had argued that the lens was attached to the retina and that uh, anything that knocked the lens would, um, through motion or, or some other means, uh, 
influenced the way you saw things. Uh, Platter himself suggested that the retina was the, the seeing part of the eye, but Kepler also, for reasons we'll go into, uh, thinks that's not true. The other source is the natural magic tradition of Gian Battista della Porta. And della Porta uh, uses this object called the camera obscura, this box with a, a hole in it that displays images, and it's very important for Renaissance painters. And what Kepler does is he, he, he modernises Alhazan's work on the eye. And he shows that uh, if you consider seriously the role of the lens in, uh, in refracting uh, light that comes in through the pupil, that lens will always refract one point in the outside world to a corresponding point on the retina. So in a sense, uh, Kepler does something quite remarkable. What he also shows is that there, there is an inverted left-to-right, upside-down image painted, as, as he says, as it were, in a picture on the retina itself. Patricia, Patricia Barrett, you spoke earlier that whatever Leonardo did, he didn't publish, so he didn't have much effect. Kepler did publish. Do we take it that uh, Rob was just saying this was perhaps the most influential time of the scientific revolution? That has maybe. But did, did we take it, do we take it that this was now in the open among scholars who were interested in this sort of thing, and he began to move forward this study in a more purposeful way? Yeah, I think it is, in a way, it's a transition between uh, optics, what we would now call optics, being part of astronomy. Because in the Aristotelian cosmos, um, the laws of light were unique in that light behaved the same on the Earth as it does out in the heavens. And the the laws for the Earth and the heavens were mostly very different in uh, Aristotle's cosmology. And light was the same in both of those spheres. And so the, the whole study of optics was by astronomers, and Kepler, for example. And it was after Kepler that it was people like Descartes and Newton who started to found what we would call a science of optics, and optics started to become a speciality in its own right. So can we refer first to Descartes? Descartes sort of picked up the Aristotelian idea that Will was talking about earlier, that light is in some way due to changes in pressure in a medium. And he did a lot of work on the rainbow. And then when Newton, there's a huge transition uh, round about the time of Descartes and Newton because now Newton started focusing on colour and colour is something we've scarcely mentioned up till now. So um, for them, the important focus of study was why is it that we see colours? I, that's, we're going to come to that, Patricia. But, okay. uh, but have we said everything you want to say about Descartes in the briefer time available? Uh, Descartes is always thought of as a very theoretical armchair philosopher, but he writes that he went down to the local butcher's shop and bought an ox's eye and started dissecting it. And he's um, very important in the history of vision because he has the, the Cartesian view of the world that mind and body are completely separated and there's a marvellous drawing that he did a, a cross section of an eye and there's a little man with a beard sitting behind the eye looking in at the image on the retina and it's though somehow you can completely separate your body and the image on your retina from your mind your brain which is somehow looking in so it's this idea that um, in your eye you can form a very objective um, point, uh, view of the world in, in one in which your mind is completely absent. Well, well Edith, um so far we've been talking about people trying to understand it um, but there was a, a parallel line which would do with people um, treating it surgically, treating the eye yes. surgically and improving it practically or trying to anyway. Mm. Can you give us some well, idea? Well, tr- treating in this um, Aristotelian and Galenic theory, it 
we've got an idea now that light and something in the eye are coming together to cause sight in the lens and the animal spirit is coming down the optic nerve into the eye and somehow interacting with light to create the image in the lens. Now, we now know that cataract is caused by the lens becoming opaque and we know that cataract surgeries is removing the opaque lens and creating clarity for the image to now be formed back on the retina. But in their day, they didn't have a concept. Obviously, you can't be removing the lens because that's the seat of vision and the people could see, see afterwards. So they believed when they were cutting into the eye and removing this opaque uh, material, it was a collection of some fluid in front of the organ of sight, the lens, between that and the cornea. So it made sense when they were putting a sharp instrument into the eye, wiggling it about and pushing down the cataractor's lens. For them, they were clearing some sort of coagulated white fluid in front of the organ of sight. And in fact, it's not really until Brissot in the 1700s who dissected a soldier's eye who had been couched where he found the cataractor's lens in the bottom of the um, eye, which proved that, in fact, Kepler was correct, that an image was being formed on the retina, and the retina is the important seat of sight, and, in fact, that the lens is a focusing <coughs> mechanism, not the organ of vision. Were these methods of surgery, how effective were they? Did people, were people blinded by them as often as they were cured by them? Uh, Do it, we have enough records? There are records. Um, it depended on when you looked. Um, the very early results within the first few days were totally remarkable and miraculous. For example, um, when Bach had his cataract depressed, he was able to see for a few days, but unfortunately he developed inflammation and eventually went blind um, and subsequently died after a second cataract operation. When the data we do have is from the Indian survey where couching was performed very frequently couching. is where we put the needle into the eye and depress the lens. It is still used by um, non-qualified surgeons in parts of Africa and in parts of India to this day. It's a very ancient technique. It was certainly effective and there were many people who were couched who went on and lived many, many years with sight when they'd previously been blind. We have to remember it was unfocused sight because they didn't have any mechanism of correcting this until the invention of spectacles and then to work out how to make extremely powerful positive lenses. So we can look at Howarth, for example, and look at um, the cataract spectacles there, which are plus six, which would have given him some vision after he'd had his eye depressed. Can I come to you, um, Rob, to tell us about Newton, his investigations into the eye. Uh, can you... Can you bear to tell us about the experiments he uh, he undertook on himself, this young, strange man? Mm. G can I just, be before that, just very briefly go back to, to what Patricia said, be because one of Descartes' um, sources is, is Kepler. And the, the, the thing that joins Kepler and Descartes, Descartes follows Kepler um, completely uh, in, in terms of the, uh, the, the anatomy and of the eye and, and uh, how the picture is painted on the back of the, the retina. Descartes is interested in binocular vision. Um, but what the, the interesting thing, I think, with both of those is that the, 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 the price of the better understanding or the cost of the better understanding of the, the mechanism of the eye is that the nature of vision becomes completely opaque, to deliberately use the pun. It's, uh, it, it's, it's impossible to know how it is that we actually see things, even though uh, we now know how the eye works. It's something to do with the optic nerve and the brain, but we don't know quite what. Now, Newton, 
um, addresses this question, I think, immediately. He goes straight to the to the heart of the matter, and he finds that the best way of determining uh, what is due to the mechanism of the eye, the outside world, and what is due to the soul, is to actually do these experiments on his own eye. And they are extraordinary, unprecedented, uh, Can you tell unrivaled experiments. Well, as you said earlier on, um, he sticks things in his eye. <laughs> he stuck uh, a needle, he, he called a bodkin, behind so his eyeball and pressed well, it to do what? First of all, he, he, well, what he's interested in doing is, is producing colours by simply deforming the eyeball. So when you see the images, and we have these on the front of the, the Newton Project website, uh, when you uh, see these images, what he's doing is, first of all, he puts a brass plate uh, underneath his eyeball as close to the backbone as he can get it, and that's not fine enough, so he puts a bodkin which in Shakespeare is a dagger, but for Newton it's a, it, it's a, a, a kind of uh, a, an implement used in leather. And he keeps pu pulling his eye uh, in, in a number of different places. But he also does more extraordinary things, like he looks at the sun for a number of minutes. We, we know that he did it through uh, a coloured prism, but it's still damaging to his eye. And he had to stay in his bedroom with the curtains drawn for a number of days. But the most extraordinary thing is he repeats the experiments because that is the kind of guy who is he who he is but he's trying to work out how colors are produced uh what is due to the outside world and what is due to as it were the mind the soul or the brain do you think he's how do you, I, patricia I, you take um, that I, up yes. i think the of course these ex experiments that newton did on himself sound extraordinary and make everybody feel quite squeamish but it was very common for people to experiment on themselves there was the idea that if you were you could use your body as an instrument and if you were a gentleman you had so somehow privileged a privileged relationship with the world and your uh, testimony could be rel relied on to tell the truth so for example when electricity was invented uh, during the 18th century people were always charging themselves up and putting electrodes in all sorts of very uncomfortable places or similarly with chemistry people were always sort of sipping and sniffing and trying things out on themselves so I think in the context of the period it wasn't quite so extraordinary as it sounds to us now, although it's definitely not one to do at home. And of course, um, even today, if you were to rub your eye vigorously, you would see lights, uh, which we call phosphenes, and essentially Newton was just producing them with rubbing a bit harder than um, you should do. This was also kind of difficult for people because it was thought to be evidence for the extra emission theory, because if you rub your eye, you're seeing lights inside, there may be an internal fire. Mm. So experiments were done where people were rubbing their eyes to create these phosphenes and someone else was looking into the eye and then noticing no light was coming out. So they realised then that this was something happening internally and not being transmitted out. The, uh, Rob, Rob Aleph, the, 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 the surgery and the development of understanding of the eye was also, we talked a little about theology, but it also entered into philosophy, didn't it? What, uh, what did we see? What was the world like? And a good example of that is the Molyneux problem, um, written by, um, written to John Locke, a letter to listen to John, written to John Locke. Could you mm. briefly tell us about that? Um, John Locke uh, is the uh, outstanding, a friend of Newton, by the way, and the outstanding empiricist philosopher of his time. That is a, a man who argued that uh, everything we know, everything about us is, is gained through the senses, ourselves, and knowledge of everything, including ourselves. Um, the first edition of his great work, Essay Concerning Human Understanding, appeared in uh, 1689, and Locke uh, 
at that point put forward some ideas about uh, vision and sense and uh, whether uh, what we see in the world is learned, how much of it is uh, due to learning. And uh, he asked, um, he was very interested actually also in, in the way that babies acquire vision. And in 1693, William Molyneux, who's a, a Dublin a natural philosopher, wrote him a, an, another letter he'd written to him before, but posed this famous question, which is, if somebody had been blind from birth and had learned to distinguish various objects by touch, let's say a cube and a sphere, roughly the same size, uh, and if they were brought to sight again, uh, would they simply by vision alone uh, be able to tell by looking at these objects which was a cube uh, and which was a sphere and both of them answered in the negative um, that is for different reasons they said that you you have to learn to be able to see and this is a very very complex issue um, and it's a wonderful issue that modern philosophers find and indeed um, neurophysiologists and uh, surgeons find very interesting but the, the the interesting historical issue is that very quickly after this i think coincidentally um there was a chance to experimentally test whether um somebody who uh, was brought back to sight again could actually see these objects and tell the difference between them and this is william cheseldon's uh, famous uh, cataract uh, uh, well couching of a 13-year-old boy. Uh, it took place over a year because he did one eye and then the next eye. Published his results in 1728. And the, it, it's a famous description. Many people think it's the most famous case study in medicine before the early 20th century. Uh, but the but Cheseldon seemed to argue in the negative again. That is that uh, without learning, in the case of this boy, um, he could not tell the difference between a sphere and a cube just by sight alone. And that took us into a completely different era. I'd like to go back to colour perception, Will. Uh, Will Aleph. Um, from Newton on, colour perception became... People were uh, intrigued by it and tried to develop it. And we, we're working towards people beginning to know about the structure of the eye, beginning to know about the lens, the retina, uh, and so on. But now we're talking about colours. Yes, and of course the... Um Interest here is of both what colours are, what is the nature of light, which stems back to pseudo-Dionysian light metaphysics and the transparency of light coming from the perfect light of God and being transferred into lumen and making opaque stones such as lapis lazulus into blue glass and blue having this particular um, colour. The, the oldest blue glass in the world, of course, is um, in sight in St Peter's Church in Durham. Um, uh, the abbey um, in, uh, built by Bishop Chugers, uh Saint-Denis was filled with blue glass very very important colour but actually how it was seen and what it was and what it was composed of is very difficult in fact colour doesn't exist in the real world it's an imaginative construct by our brains colour is the differential reflection of lights at different wavelengths from surfaces. And we evolved receptors that maximally pick up these vibrations at different um, wavelengths. And we compare them. And that comparison allows our brain to generate a colour. Knowing that, it becomes very difficult to retrospectively go back and start to understand what was Newton's colour theory, what was Goethe's colour theory, you know, where does Turner fit into this? 
Well, essentially what we're looking at is the nature between what actually colour is in the outside and what colour is being perceived. And if we drop the colour theories broadly into those categories, we look at Goethe saying that colour is something to do with me, it's a perception that I am generating from the outside world, and the optical, they're saying, colour is something that is present in the world, we can break white light and put it into a prism. I'm, afraid, I'm really sorry, we have to shift it. Sure. There's obviously seven programmes in this, but I think that takes us there. Briefly, Patricia, can you talk about the colour blindness and the work of John Dalton, how that fits into what uh, oh, yes, well, well, this I don't know how true this story is, but there, there is a story that John Dalton, who was a very devout Quaker, uh, went off to church one day and he was wearing bright red stockings and that was because he thought he'd brought brown stockings and he got told off by his brother for misbehaving. And that led him into a whole series of um, experiments where he, he looked at th- flowers and other things by candlelight and he discovered that he and his brothers saw colours rather differently from how everybody else does. And so he, he was the first person to sort of analyse and explore this phenomenon and it became known as Daltonism right through until the middle of the 19th century when Brewster coined the term colour blindness because he said it was disrespectful to Dalton's memory that he should only be remembered by something that was defective in his eyes and as late as ni- uh, ni- in the 1990s they operated on Dalton and they discovered what, uh, what the deficiency was that he had. We can't do this programme without mentioning Will, without mentioning the German Willy Kuhner who added greatly to Yes, well, Vinnie Kuhner was working um, on the retina and what the nature of vision was at the retinal level. Visual purple had been discovered um, by Boltz. <coughs> he, again, had the Keplerian view that the eye could be looked on as a camera. And what he tried to do was to use the eye to take photographs, essentially. And he had a rabbit, and he killed the rabbit and immediately fixed the retina and found an image of the bars of the cage and the window of his laboratory in Heidelberg. He was then invited to a hanging and immediately after death fixed the eye of the person who was hanged and uh, says that he could see an image on the back. So they were developing the retina as a camera, which led to the great misperception that that's in fact how the eye is working. And people actually believe that these images were there and in fact comes to the inquest of Chapman where the jury foreman actually says, did you take photographs of her eyes to identify the fo- Jack the Ripper photographed on the back of the retina? And, of course, in Ulysses and so on. Well, thanks for rushing that. I'm sorry I rushed you at the end, but uh, needs must. Thank you, Patricia Farah, Rob Aleph, Will Aleph. Next week we'll be talking about the first-century Roman slave Spartacus. Thank you for listening. There are many more Radio 4 arts and discussion programmes to download for free. Find these on the website at bbc.co.uk slash radio 4.